0: So I guess by way of introduction in terms of like how did I pick the text, that kind of thing, um you know, is is you sort of those of you who've been tending ascension for very long, we tend to like Eric is right now in the middle of going through the Gospel of John and it could be two or three years before he finishes at the rate that we're going. Um and and I'm a strong believer in the idea that um the faithful way for the, um, the church to proclaim the word of God is in whole chunks of the word of God. We're t- taking a break here because uh, because Eric's gone. And so, you know, the the text I've chosen today is really just um, one of practical application to myself, and um, I believe may be of encouragement to you as well um, in the opportunities I've had to interact with members of our congregation and those who attend um, I, that is my intent is to take what can potentially be kind of a hard, tough text and uh apply it in a way that we might find encouragement in it as opposed to uh to despair or discouragement because I certainly do i I um certainly enjoy it so that's the by way of introduction it really is again this is one of my favorite kind of areas of Romans that Paul deals with. Um, We're in chapter 7, uh, verses 14 through 26. Why don't I pray and then we'll read the text and get started. Gracious Father, thank you that uh, down through the centuries you've preserved your revelation of yourself in your word. Um, Please, Holy Spirit, open this word to us today. Uh, Give us ears to hear that we might know you more and that we might love you more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Romans chapter 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not, what, I do, not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The word of the Lord. Amen. So just brief introduction that everybody is roughly familiar with. The book of Romans written by the Apostle Paul, its main audience being the church in Rome in the first century, most likely a group of Gentile converts to the faith. Um, beautiful book, and I'm not going to dig much into how the uses of sin and death and the law are connected and what Paul has been saying in all the chapters leading up to this. I'm going to stick to the more personal aspects of how Paul is speaking in this uh, in this text and hopefully connect it for all of us personally as well. So it's here in Chapter 7 that um, the Apostle Paul takes a lot of what he has said early in the book and begins to actually apply it to himself and gets personal. He uses himself as an object lesson um, for what he's been proclaiming. Um, in this section that we're reading today, earlier in Chapter 7, here's here's what he had to say. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Uh, This section of the book um, makes me kind of believe this, Particular section of chapter 7 is that Paul was a, a person who had spent some degree of time in self examination rather than just studying the Word of God. He was, you know, the wisdom is the application of the Word of God in life. And it looks to me like this is a person who spent a fair amount of time trying to apply that to himself through self examination. Um, there's a whole other sermon to state based on sort of what I read, but he makes it very clear that the law, you shall not covet, was something he didn't actually, until it was stated, he didn't really think there was a problem with it. And, I, you know, let's, let's acknowledge, at least in our culture, almost everything that we're exposed to in media is to tickle your covetousness bone. Right? To say, I want that. That's that's the world in which we live. And it's really easy to see, like Paul says, if the law hadn't said, don't covet, I would have thought that was okay. That's just what do, fish swim. We're in water. Um, The commandment, which was good, brought forward, if you will, in himself, the death that that sin produces. Um, And it being a commandment of God, he recognized that it was actually an assault against God himself. It wasn't just a rule he was breaking. It was an assault against the person uh, of God who made him. Um, I really think it's interesting and wonderful that Paul uses covetousness here as a personal sin example. Um, You know, think about it. He was a persecutor of Jesus in the church prior to his conversion on the Damascus Road, and it would have been really easy to bring that up as an example of you know how he might leading into how he might be a sinner, but that was before he became a believer, before he he placed his faith and trust in Christ. That was you know the that was before the Damascus Road. So let's go into the the text the text here in chapter 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Um, throughout this, I'll rely a lot on uh, John Owen's. Nature of Power, Deceit, and Prevalency of the Remainders of Indwelling Sin and in Believers. Um, long title, um, but uh, if you can get past some of the archaic language that Owen uses, um, his pastoral bent in the beauty in which he talks about things is is something I find very helpful. Um, so in, in the way Owen deals with this idea that the law is spiritual, he says, a law can mean a directive or a rule with things that it commands, like um, you know, like federal laws or state laws or things like that, things that it forbids, there's rewards and punishments. But law can also mean the operative principle or force behind something, the principle that is in the nature of all things, carrying it ultimately towards its own end, laws of nature. So here he's saying that um, the way to be thinking about the law of spiritual is that the law of God comes from who God is in himself that since the God is spirit and the law of God comes from God, the law is spiritual. It's not a separate set of rules or, or laws in the sense of a constitution or federal and state laws or commercial code external from a person. The law of God comes from the very nature of who he is. And as um, Katie sort of read, you know, that psalm is one of my favorite psalms, and it really kind of describes in the beginning how everything around us points to the, to the glory of the creator and who he is. And there's this wonderful second section that talks about how the beauty of the law, and the beauty of the law is beautiful because of who it is from, who it reflects. Not because of the rules and the things it says what to do and don't do, but it is of God. So um, it comes from who he is. As an aside here, it's helpful Um, for us to see, then, how impossible it... This is a little aside parenthetical statement, but it helps us to understand why it would have been impossible for Jesus to sin, um, to violate in any way the law of God. Um, The law of God comes from who Jesus is. Jesus could not do anything than be who he was. You know, the the classic trick theological question that people ask him is, well, what, what can't God do? What's the one thing that God can't do and the one thing God can't do is not be God. So instead of you know, being focused on, well, God can't sin, well, yeah, but he can't sin because he can't be other than God. He is who he is. He's perfect. Um, so back to the text. Um, Paul here is contrasting the law of God with himself. And to be clear, Paul is speaking about himself um, as he is now, as he is writing this book, not before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. We use the theological term regenerate. Um, Those who have um, been, by the power of the Holy Spirit, regenerated, born again by the Spirit, who by faith are in Jesus Christ. He's not talking about unbelievers here. He's talking about or the unregenerate. He's talking about himself and, by extension, all of us. There are commentators that have trouble with this text and believe that he's talking about unbelievers or what goes on in unbelievers. He isn't. Paul is speaking about himself as one in Christ, as an example of all of those whose faith is in Jesus. Paul is saying he is of the flesh in his sinful humanity, sold under sin. Sin holds the mortgage on Paul's flesh. Sin is the first response of our fallen nature. We are not under a compulsion to sin. We sin because it's our natural state. We want to sin. Paul goes on to explain more practically what he means here. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul is not specific here in terms of, like he was with covetousness in the earlier part of the chapter, in terms of what he's talking about here. But hopefully he doesn't have to be specific in order for us to relate to what this is. Um, Anyone who has ongoing sin in your life, you know, the phrase people will use is indwelling sin, um, should easily be able to write what Paul is saying here. We should easily be able to take what Paul is saying here about himself and see that it applies to us as well. Addictions, as we often call them today, are the uh, easier-to-see expressions of this indwelling sin, an addiction to drugs— to alcohol, to pornography, to anger, to violence, to food, often producing us a remorse or a shame or hopefully a hatred for the things we do. But that's not enough to stop us from doing it. We're doing it again and again. Those are the big easy ones, but I think we're (laughs) likely all guilty of the snarky comment, the critical response, the judgmental attitude, the angry outburst at those we live with and profess to love, our spouses, our children, our parents. Those things we do, those are the things we do, and that we hate that we do them. But we still do them. Paul goes on, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that's good. Paul says here that there's a conflict that exists in him. He does what he does not want to do, and he says the recognition of that is good. Even if he does not do what is good, since the law is spiritual, it is good that he has been given the law, that we have been given the law to see. That what we do is not good. On a human level, it may not make sense, and our practical experience of it, it certainly isn't enjoyable. It doesn't always feel good. But the fact that you have that, beloved, is good. The simple fact that there are things we do that we hate, rightfully so, because God's law tells us that it is wrong, is good. It's really, really good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Paul acknowledges it is the sin that dwells within him that does what he does not want to do. There's no excuses here. He does not lay the blame on all the temptations of the world, on his circumstances, on his trials or misfortunes. It's not, you know... My brother looked at me wrong, so I had to punch him. It's not something made me do it. There's not something external to himself. Paul says the source of this problem is in him. This is the man who later in his life, recorded in Scripture, can openly, honestly, and I believe completely forthrightly describe himself as the chief of all sinners. Not because he's as his own judge laid up all his sins and compared them to everybody he's ever known. It's for each of us, beloved. We know our own souls better than anybody else's. And if we know enough about our own souls, we can help but do what Paul says and say, yeah, I'm the chief of all sinners because I know more about my own sins than I know about any of yours. He goes on, for I have the desire to do what, right, what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So although there is nothing good in Paul in his flesh, there is, by the Holy Spirit, a desire to do what is right. But once again, in his flesh, he has no ability to carry it out. So again, lay aside the big sins, the addictions, the gross things that are easy to see. How many times do we do not do what we ought to do? Or we know what we ought to do, but don't do it. Uh, Too often for me, it's my own comfort, my own schedule. There's things I want to do today or things I don't want to be bothered by. I know the right thing to do, but I don't do it because those things are going to get in the way of my idea of what a good day or a good week would be. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do is what I keep on doing. Again, hopefully you can relate to Paul's simple summary. I can easily see all this and say, yep, that's me. Paul personifies the sin he is teaching about here. Paul can say this, confess it, write it down to encourage the church, to encourage the church in Rome, to encourage all those who read these words in the century's sins, to encourage us here today. Now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So again, Paul's repeating himself here. He acknowledges he does not do what he wants to do. He does what is not good. Sin dwells in him. So again, be clear, brothers and sisters. Paul is talking about himself. This isn't a theoretical example. The great apostle to the Gentiles, used by God to write a good section of the New Testament, says to us that he does what he does not want to do. He does what is wrong. He sins. In fact, Paul says, sin dwells within him. The sin he was born in, the sin he was born with, the sin nature we all share. So I find it to be a law that when I do what is, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Again, I think um, I'll leverage John Owen's quote in describing Paul's use of the law in these verses. It's really helpful. So again, Owen says, if you think about this, Paul discovers this law, and this law he discovers in himself, right? This is again through self-examination that he sees this law in himself. An inward principle that moves and inclines constantly unto any actions is called a law. Think of it as a force. The principle that is in the nature of everything, moving and carrying it towards its own end, its own rest, is called the laws of nature. In this respect, Every inward principle that inclines and urges unto operations or actions suitable to itself is a law. So earlier in Romans seven two, um, Paul says the powerful and effectual working of the spirit and grace of Christ in the hearts of believers is called the law of the spirit of life. That's a force at work in the hearts of believers. And for this reason, the apostle here calls indwelling sin a law. It is a powerful and effectual indwelling principle, inclining and pressing unto actions agreeable and suitable with its own nature. And a few sentences later. So this and no other is the intention of the apostle in this expression. For all that that term, a law, may sometimes intend a state or a condition. It is here used, so the meaning of the word should be, I find that this is my condition. This is the state of things with me, that when I would do good, evil is present within me. The taint of sin touches all we do, even the good we do. Paul goes on, For I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. These verses really do aptly summarize what Augustine I think probably first coined as the Christian struggle. There are two laws, two forces, two natures at war within Paul. Those who are born again by the Spirit now possess two natures. Two natures at war with each other. The Christian struggle is the ongoing experience of the believer in this life. It is a struggle within Paul. It's a struggle within each of us who profess faith in Christ. So although we do struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, the flesh, us, in ourselves, is at its root. In looking at Paul at ourselves, we see how thoroughly messed up we are. And like him, based on all this, we might just say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Dear ones, Don't stop here at self-examination. Don't stop at depression. Don't stop at despair. But turn like Paul does in the very next sentence says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The response of this self-examination is not depression or despair or beating yourself up. The response here is not now what must I do to fix this, to make this better, to make it go away, to pull up my big boy pants and make sure it never happens again. The response is a person. It's Jesus Christ. That's Paul's response to this miserable state he recognized himself in, this miserable state that would lead him to death. What's the only hope he's got? Jesus Christ. Beloved, you have all been given Christ. God loved you so much that He gave His Son. He gave His Son to us, born to be one of us. Jesus lived with us, He died for us. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Sin and its rightful punishment death was swallowed up by Jesus on his cross. God provided. You are now in Christ. You've heard it. You've been taught it. Accept it with a believing heart. That's the ground upon which we begin to judge ourselves rightly and to continue to see Jesus in his perfection. So that, like Paul, hopefully you can get to what I would almost describe as an open, almost matter-of-fact statement that he makes about himself. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, and with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That's the truth of the insane human condition for those of us who who are in Christ. So hear this from God as we end this text. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Amen. Thank you.